Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today we have episode 292 for October 3rd, 2022, and we've got a great interview for you today. I'm going to be talking with Jordan Wines. He's uh, a representative from the Hackasat team, and as that might imply, it's about hacking satellites. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. First of all, a quick reminder, the mailbag is open. I am taking your questions. I will read your questions and answer them on the air. If you want to send me your questions, send them to Dear Carrie, D-E-A-R-C-A-R-E-Y, at firewallsdonestopdragons.com. If you want all the details, go to my new uh, shortened uh, URL thing. Uh, go to fdsd.me slash Q&A for details. There's links in the show notes as well. And I will be drawing uh, a name out of the hat for all the people that submit me questions. And then, and if you win that little raffle, I'll send you a free copy of my book. All right, everybody. So today we're going to be talking about hacking tournaments, hacking contests called Capture the Flag or CTF contests. And in the interview, we'll, we'll talk about what that really means. But I want to preface this by saying I, re I realize that most of you are not hackers. Uh, and this is something that you might think you would never do. But... I wanted to talk about this for a couple reasons. First of all, it's really interesting. I don't know of any other profession where one of the primary ways that people get training and keep their skills up to date is by playing games, contests, competing against each other. This is like a real part of being a hacker or, or a penetration tester, maybe a pen tester. If you are in the cybersecurity realm, either as a profession or just as a hobby, this is something that you probably do on a regular basis. And again, this is like no other professional skill that I know of. So I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of go behind the scenes and see what these things are all about. The other thing I'd like you to keep in mind as you listen to today's interview is that cybersecurity and hacking are things that really just about anybody can do. It's one of the few high-tech professions that honestly doesn't require a degree. Even if you wanted to get into software programming, a lot of companies won't hire you without some sort of formal training. But for some reason, when it comes to cybersecurity, that's just not the thing. All you really need to do is show your proficiency. And the way a lot of people get proficient is through these contests, these capture the flag contests. And also, if you just want to kind of play around with this stuff and get an idea for how your computer is vulnerable and why we ask you to do the things to, we ask you to do, like having long, strong passwords and things like that, Dabbling around with these little CTF tournaments, which you can do absolutely free, will give you a lot of insight into that. So today we're going to be talking with Jordan Wines, and he's representing the Hackasat program, which is now in its third year. It's a program run in coordination with the U.S. military to help improve satellite security. And you might think, how do you hack a satellite? I mean, it's, you know, many, many miles above the earth. How does one hack one of these things? Well, as if you think about it, of course, these things are connected to us via wireless networking capability. It, therefore, if you can point an antenna at a satellite and have the right equipment and know-how, you can hack these things like you could hack somebody's webcam. And these things are hackable, and these things have been hacked. In fact, at DEF CON this year, I think there were two different stories uh, just this year about somebody hacked a satellite. Somebody hacked a Starlink satellite using $35 in equipment, uh, and someone else hacked a decommissioned Canadian satellite to broadcast the War Games movie uh, around the planet using, I think, $300 worth of equipment. It can be done. And these satellites are really important, not just for communications, but for GPS and a lot of things that we take for granted. So we're going to get into all that stuff today with Jordan. One quick definition before we start, he does throw out the term MMO. If you're not familiar with that, that means massively multiplayer online, which is just some jargon that basically means a lot of people are participating remotely online. I'll have a few more things to talk about, but I'll save that for after the interview. All right, so let's dig in a little bit and find out how these capture the flag tournaments work and how hackers hone their skills. Jordan Wines has been a reverse engineer, a vulnerability researcher, a network security engineer, a three-time DEF CON CTF winner, even a technical magazine writer, but now he's mostly a has-been CTF player who loves to talk about them. He has been the CTF expert for the first three years of the Hackasat program, and he was one of the founders of Vector35, the company that makes Binary Ninja. Uh, welcome to the show, Jordan. Thanks, Kerry. I'm happy to be here. 
uh, we're going to talk about CTFs or Capture the Flag tournaments. And this is something that, uh, you know, I'm sure some of my audience has heard of. Uh, they've heard me mention it probably off and on uh, here and there. The Hackersat program is really cool. We'll talk a little bit about that. But I kind of want to dig it, uh, into CTFs at a more high level and explain what they are for muggles, for people that maybe <laughs> are yeah. not used to them. Uh, your team has been running this Hackersat program. I think we're in the third year of this. Last year, I spoke with Jason Williams of Car Radio, who were doing Hackersat 2 last year. So maybe just real briefly, remind us what the program's all about and, and maybe what's new this year. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So so first, I, w- I will differentiate. I am basically the talking head for Hackasat. So, mm-hmm. so you know, Vector35 is my company, and we, we do the, a couple of things. I do a lot of CTF stuff. Mm. And so I came in just to help with, like, the visualization mm. and the talking about the CTF. Okay. Jason Williams, who you talked to before, his team, they do all the hard work. So all of the really <laughs> good, technical, in-depth, hands-on work, that's all them. Okay. Uh, and I'm happy just to talk about it, and, and so I just want to make sure I'm not claiming credit uh, yeah. uh, for for the work that they're doing at, at Cromulence. But yeah, there's there's a number of other t- uh, groups, companies, parts of the government that are all involved in Hackasat. But the idea behind Hackasat is uh, several years ago, the government sort of looked at what the security community was doing with these capture the flag competitions, which we can talk more about, uh, and said, "Hey, that seems really good. How do we leverage this?" to improve the security of uh, space because there's like a lot of specific problems just in satellites and in space communications and whatnot that you don't have kind of on the right. ground. And so that was that was sort of the goal. And they've uh, it, it takes a huge amount of work. A lot of people look at like a DEF CON CTF or some of these other capture the flags and they would say, oh, like, that'd be cool. I want one of those for training or for whatever purpose for my company. And then they come to you and they say, you know, oh, it's going to cost you like millions of dollars. And they're like, wait, what? Like, no, really, because it's all experts that are producing really difficult challenges and problems. It takes a huge amount of time to get to kind of do it right. So I know that like a lot of friends from the CTF community over the years have like spun off companies, and it's uh, in fact when we started our company we debated like do we make a CTF offering like a paid and we're just mm. like it's just not worth it because like very few people are able to actually do it well and to, to put the resources and so that's why right now most of the CTF community is all hobbyists that are doing mm. it because we love it and it's fun and we you know there's a lot of lot of things out there that that are happening just unpaid because it'd be too expensive if you actually had to, had to pay people to, to do a lot of the stuff. But Hackasat is one of the few ones that really has good momentum behind it. The government obviously can kind of make it happen and pull together the right groups, right? So like you have The Difference, who is like the firm that does like all the graphic design and marketing and like the story, like they have amazing visuals and sticker, like all the really cool graphics and stuff that, that they do for Hackasat. The Difference does an amazing job with. Uh, so like, you know, they can pull all these different groups together to, to make something like that happen. In, in terms of like, you know, what's a capture the flag, right? So like, you know, we've said it, but like, what is this? I, you know, I usually tell people it's a lot like running around in your backyard, uh, except the field is code uh, and the flags are like data, right? So mm. you're either you're either going on and you're either stealing a flag, stealing a piece of data that's not yours and taking it back to prove, aha, I solved it. Um, or sometimes it's just, and, and there's different like sort of styles of, of these sure. games too. And and the the most common one, is, is just everyone's attacking the same server and you're all trying to get the flag first or you're trying to get the most flags and it's score based on the, kind of how many you get. Uh, Hackasat is really unique. Hackasat, DEFCON CTF, there are very few other CTFs these days that are what we call attack defend. And an attack defend CTF means, as what it sounds like, right? It's like, that's like the real capture the flag game in the field. I've got my territory, you've got your territory, and I'm trying to get into yours. I'm trying to keep you from getting into mine. And we've got finite resources that we've got to decide. Like, are we going to put our people on defending, on attacking, and balance? And like, sort of like the game theory behind that. It's just it's just really fascinating, you know, as, as you do that. And so you have a lot of the same trade-offs. Well, and, and last year when I talked, when I interviewed those two last year, we talked a lot about why satellites are so important in modern day life. And I mean, some people think about well, television satellites and communication satellites, but there's GPS and there's several other things that, and GPS alone, I mean, the, the things that require a solid GPS system are huge. So anyway, I'll encourage the audience to go back and listen to that if they have time. But this this Hackersat program, this is something that you guys have been developing over the years, and I think it's been evolving over the years. I don't know if it's like a phased thing, like each year there's a, there's a like a lot of times DEF CON things are phased things where there's, this year we're doing this and our next mile milestone is next year where we do something slightly different or more advanced. What, so what has changed in Hackasat? What does what the evolution of Hackasat look like? Yeah, so this is year three uh, of, of a, you know, at least there's been four years that have kind of been mapped out. And there's four years that, that have were planned kind of from the beginning. And, and part of why I got interested even from the beginning was because I heard, I'm like, wait a minute, you're going to go to space? Like, okay, that sounds really cool. So not in year three, not, not this year, but uh, it's already in planning for year four 
is to get to space. And so the idea has been every year along the way has been kind of like a step in, in getting closer to that. So the first year, they actually designed it to, to be played at DEF CON. And so they built a big physical thing that like orbited the satellites around a room. And then COVID hit. And mm. we instead had this giant room in Cromulence's office where it was like not on air conditioned space that we were all in there where these you know bubbles were rotating around. You actually see all the videos online. We've got uh, a bunch of time lapse of, of, of everybody setting them up and being in there. And thankfully, I'm, I'm just down the street from them. So it was easy to have access. So I did the whole broadcast. What was intended to be like the side thing to an in-person event turned into just me in front of a camera far more than it probably should have been just trying to tell people what was going on in the game as we, we adapted to COVID. So that was year one where we had these things. They weren't space ready, but they were kind of based on some of the same space concepts and, and kind of designs. Um, years two and three have been an iteration on, okay, we're going to aim now towards we know year four is going to be in space. And so they're building the platform to be more and more like the actual system that it's going to exist. Like they've always been using kind of real technology and actual software tools that are used, actual platforms and embedded things that are that are you know space-like. And mm-hmm. now we're getting closer and closer to actually being in space. So this year in particular, that we've got like what's called a digital twin. And really part of this is the team shifting their uh, energy to say, we're not going to build a hardware thing this year that is going to take a lot of time and effort away from getting the hardware that has to go into space next year. And so more of the hardware focus has been on like the sort of like two-year plan now where they're all, you know, really focusing on on the launch and and the event for, for next year. And so what we're doing then is modeling the hardware and software. And so things like where the the satellite is like in like literally the first year there was actually a room and you had to calculate where you were in a room mm. but it wasn't like orbiting the earth mm-hmm. or anything you know and so and so now the simulation software actually has your satellite in space with actual power requirements and are you oriented towards the sun are you charging or not that was actually a thing like like mm. last year that came up that several of the teams had different levels of uh, of accuracy, I guess, in pointing at the sun, right? So how how much you know angle of incidence could they get with the sunlight? And obviously, you want to be like dead on to get the most power, mm-hmm. but you didn't need to be perfect. But then, right. if you had less power, maybe you had less other things that could go on. And so if you mm. accidentally DOS your server and even your CPU is, is spinning a lot, well, actually, that drew power that was coming from the sun. And so, mm-hmm. like, it's you know, these are the kind of things that you have to deal with when you've got a, a you know something that doesn't have a wall plug, right? And you're, you're playing a CTF on it. And so, so that, that's the kind of thing that I think this year we're going to see as well too. Teams having to adapt to the, the kind of the, the nature of the, the other one that uh, is going to be really interesting is actually like communication windows. So in the, the past events, they just had to log into a system that was controlling their, their satellite constantly. But in the real world, you often actually don't have that. Like the satellites are moving and it's not always overhead. And so you have different ground stations or you're leasing out from other ground station networks and you may have outages or periods where it's unavailable. And so I think, you know, this year we're going to start to see the environment again more closely model what it's going to be when it actually is, you know, in space next year. All right. Well, we're going to talk a lot about CTFs today. And I, I what I want to prep the audience for is that even if you're not a hacker, I, want, I think it's important important or at least interesting to understand how these things work and how the hacking community uses these things to hone their skills and to improve the security for everybody. So let's go back a little bit. What, uh, the, to the best of your knowledge, what is the history of cyber CTFs? You know, like when did they all start and like when did they become popular? It's, it's a good question. They predate me. I'm, you know, in my 40s at this point, and I'm an old man by CTF. That's why I say I just talk about CTFs anymore. I don't <laughs> play it. Being competitive takes a lot of work. Like, I've, I've been there. But I was around really for the rise of it, which, which has been fun. So CTFs themselves have actually been around for, I think, about 28 years now. In particular, DEF CON CTF, which, you know, you've, you've talked a lot about DEF CON. And as your, your listeners are aware, it's a, you know, the probably the most famous security conference out there. They have had an active CTF almost their entire history. Mm. Uh, not quite. The first like a couple of years, one or two years, they didn't have one. But since then, they've had a capture the flag. And what happened is, I've actually got a whole talk on kind of some of the history of, of DEF CON CTF and, and some of the things that have happened that have given at, at DEF CON. But they're, at, and I've even got a Google Sheet uh, we, we can link uh, folks to if they really mm. want to dig into it. You can mm-hmm. talk about like every year, who was running it, who won it, or the teams, mm-hmm. the competition. So yeah, I've, 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 I've spent <laughs> like, I have a, a part-time job as a historian. CTF uh, anthropologist. Yeah, yeah historian, yeah. exactly. Because there's really cool stuff. I mean, we could spend so many hours, literally just every year, there's neat stories. There's cool hacks. There's fun drama, things that happened kind of behind the scenes. And so it's, it's, super, it's, it, it's super exciting. But what, what happened, I think, the, sort of like broad 
scale for like DEFCON in particular is it started just these really ad hoc events like you would show up with a laptop and you were like in fact the first time I played in 2001 I think was my very first DEFCON CTF and uh, you would just walk up and just like join a team and you would sit down and if you got plugged in you hope you were secure because people were going to be attacking you you were part of the CTF <laughs> right and while that's kind of still a little bit in scope depending on the CTF. Now really what it's much more formalized and structured, right? Like you mm-hmm. show up, uh, first of all, you can't just sit down and play. You have to qualify. There's mm-hmm. actually like an entire qualification round where only the best teams can even play because there's just too many people that, that right. want to participate. You know, at DEF CON in particular, you get like a black badge as like a, the big prize and you get eight black badges for winning the CTF. It's the only event that like has year after year consistently gotten that many badges it's always been the, the creme de la creme the biggest uh kind of kind of thing going on in defcon in terms of like notoriety certainly mm. right and so uh you used to actually leather jackets too i don't know if they still do that anymore but they used to, i have like several like leather jackets that were like the special thing you got oh, i haven't um, seen those i just did they give them out the, the, the order at the ceremonies at the end because if they do then i didn't see them in the last two years well, so this year, so I was on stage when, the, when, we, when we announced it this year because I actually had a role with, with a thing called Live CTF, which is a whole, <laughs> a whole separate thing. But the team that, that won, when MMA won, they, they took them off to the side to go get their black badges. And I don't know if then if they got oh, the jackets okay. or not, but, but I'll have to ask some, some, some folks there. It wasn't like you won money. It wasn't like, you know, so like Hackensat actually has, has serious prizes. There's, there's pretty good uh, cash prizes. So, so yeah, so DEF CON, you win this badge and a black jacket. There's no money. Uh, other CTFs, not just Hackasat, ha- have done prizes as well. So Hackasat is one of the bigger kind of cash prizes thing, uh, really to draw attention and to get like the best people taking it really seriously. Everybody that qualifies uh, gets ten thousand dollars, and then of of the top teams, I think there's ten teams or nine or ten teams that qualify uh, because some are alternates. Like if one of the teams can't make it, can't participate for whatever reason, they still want to have you know pre-qualified teams, uh, and then the top eight play. And they're playing for fifty thousand, thirty thousand, and twenty thousand between first, wow. second, and third. So I mean, like, it's, it's, it's not chump change. Yeah. Um, but you know, the funny thing is, like, I'm friends with a lot of people. They're still actively playing. I know a lot of folks in these teams, and we, you know, we don't do it for for the money. Like, it, it looks good on a headline, and it's really mm-hmm. neat. But like, honestly, uh, a lot of people play Hackasad in particular because it's it's new and different. It's you know, we've been playing CTFs now, as I said, for almost thirty years. Not everyone. There's very few people yeah. who've actually been active. There's like one guy, so Chris Eagle uh, is the only is the only person I know of who's basically been playing CTF since the beginning, wow. and is still competitive and active, which is which is amazing. He's really really good. But um, you know, most people can only play super competitively for for a short period of time, and we don't don't really do it for the money. It's, you know, we're all well-paid security professionals usually in our day jobs. And so it's, it's really about interesting challenges, learning things, problem solving, proving that we're the best, the notoriety that, mm-hmm. you know, that's usually the, the most motivating thing. So you mentioned doing this you know, for a job. There's, there's a massive shortage right now in cybersecurity personnel. I looked at one website called CyberSeek. Uh, it said there's over 700,000 open positions right now in the U.S. alone in, in, the, in the realm of cybersecurity, which did cover you know, many, you know, several aspects of cybersecurity. But, and that was up from 460,000 last year. So why is, yeah. why is there such a growing need for this and why are we having trouble filling these positions? So I, I, two parts to that. I mean, I think the need is sort of intuitive to everybody, right? Just more and more of our lives are, are digital. Every, you know, there's, we're not making less computers. We're not putting less data online. And so yeah. you know, the rate at which we're putting things out there exceeds our ability as an industry to scale to it because so much of it still kind of, uh, you know, it takes smart people to do a lot of the stuff. And you know, as fast as we can try to build automation, we're just kind of not keeping up as a, as a security industry. Uh, and you know, on the other side of it, where is the the training? Twenty years ago, I started a security club at the University of Florida. I was I was working as a network security engineer for the university, so doing kind of network security incident response, and starting to get interested in like, hey, this this hacking CTF stuff is 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 kind of fun and interesting. And so, uh, as after a couple of years, as I was was full time at the university, students formed a club, and I was it was the advisor for a little while. Uh, they ended up kind of playing just these these CTFs. What's interesting is that there has been an increase in the amount of collegiate training and events. Those are those events like called CCDC, uh, the Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. That is a pure defensive exercise, like you know, it's a pure blue exercise, as you know, we call it. Which is so we use it like the some of the CTF community, not everybody, uh, will reuse some like the kind of military red team, blue team kind of terms get used. I like actually the phrase uh, purple team to describe like 
DEFCON where you're both attack and defense. Mm. You've got both red and blue. The same team is both mm-hmm. offense and defense. And actually, it's really important how those two coordinate and communicate. The best team that wins an attack defense competition isn't always the team that ha- has the best attack, right? Because if you're really good on attack but really bad on defense, you can still lose. And likewise, mm-hmm. if you have great defense but you don't know how to attack, you can still lose. And it's really about both of them being good together and, and sharing what, what, what they learn between the two. And I think that's actually one of the, the problems I kind of have with sort of like what's happened is you see Cyber Patriot is another one. There's actually now this international CTF competition that is being done uh, between countries of the world and regions of the world. And there's a, it's a worldwide collegiate level CTF event that is, is, is pretty cool. And so there's all these, these events. Some of them, though, tend to be really defensive focused. And I think it's, it's kind of boring. Uh, like it's, it's just, yeah, like install your patches and the fun stuff is the people who get to do the attacks. And I think it actually, you get more engagement and people are get more interested when they can do both. And it's not to say that during my day job, I'm going to go and hack somebody else, but you know, it, it is helpful to, to understand what attacks are useful and oh, easy and hard, yeah. right? And like, you know, in, in, in kind of your day job. And I think it, because it also makes it more kind of gamified and more engaging and exciting when you're doing both, I think that that tends to be helpful. And so... Yeah, CTFs are, though, such a good way to recruit and to hire and find people. Because people that like, are really excited and good at this stuff uh, can just drop in some of these security positions and be, and be so good. Uh, I used to work for a defense contractor and led like, a, a team that was doing vulnerability research. We were writing exploits. And you can't just go and find people, especially those that can get a clearance, you know, out uh, in the world very easily. But we would go to these CTFs and find people who, or find people who were like doing game cheats and game hacks, and had no idea those exact skills were directly transferable to like actually securing software, like in in the real world. And so, yeah, it's super interesting to see how there's all these kind of like niche groups that that have real relevance. Well, as we try to fill these positions, I think one of the things I'd like to highlight is that cybersecurity is one of these weird areas where it does take a certain level of skills, but it's not like the traditional track of going through college. You can go that way. There are several colleges that are offering cybersecurity degrees. And obviously, as a software programmer, you know, I I could probably pretty easily make that shift. But this is one of those weird industries where... Or weird professions that if you really want to do it at a professional level, and, and, and there's the CTFs and there are professional CTF players, but I mean, actually like getting into industry, working for companies to improve their defense yep. or, or whatever, where you don't necessarily need a college degree. So if you were hiring somebody into the, your cybersecurity department of your enterprise organization, what kind of skills and background would you be looking for for someone to fill that job? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And again, I, I was, and I, I have, I've done that over, over several organizations now. And I have hired people without college degrees and in, in every one of those roles. There are colleges that do a better job. And there are colleges that do a worse job. People that come out of colleges that fundamentally just understand how computers work really, really well and understand technology really well can kind of do anything. They're just smart, good engineers, and, and they're going to they're gonna be great. So you go to like a Stanford and MIT, Carnegie Mellon, some of these traditional, like really, really strong CS schools, those people can, can, can do all this stuff. Some of the other schools, they tend to teach like whatever, like, you know, they're teaching just a bunch of Java. And so it turns out those students don't know anything at all about how the memory actually works. They don't understand <laughs> even what a buffer overflow is because that's just not in the mental model of what computers are. Computers are just a Java API. That, that's it. Right. And so they do a, a disservice, right, by kind of teaching that. And, you know, I, I don't want to knock entirely in the CTF community in particular and in like the offensive exploitation kind of culture and community that was I spent a lot of time in. There's actually a lot of like poo-pooing of, of academia. And there's a lot of like, it's completely useless. Don't bother with us. Same thing with certs. Like certs aren't even all that useful. And I think that's that's an extreme that's it's it's maybe not healthy. But but I do yeah, like I've hired I, I hired actually a, a both developer who is a reverse engineer and a full time developer who was sixteen when I, I hired him in, in in town that happened to get introduced from a friend to a friend, hadn't graduated high school will probably go to college, but, but may or may not. Like, doesn't need to. I think career-wise, it's just more a matter of, like, life-wise wants to experience it. And, you know, he's unbelievable. Like, he's got all the skills from, like, you know, kind of being involved in, like, uh, the game reversing world, right? It's just a lot of people get really into, like, oh, how does this game work? How would I, how would I cheat at this? You know, whether or not you're actually kind of doing it just as a thought exercise. And so there's a lot of people with these skills that are really overqualified, and school's kind of a waste for them. Like, it really... Yeah, it, it, well, let me phrase, again, it's not completely a waste. There's a lot of like valuable life lessons, you know, the mm, college can teach right. you. It's sort of like living on your own and kind of stepping out for it. Like there's stuff right. that, that's valuable there. Learning to work in teams and groups mm-hmm. and group projects, that's all sorts of stuff. But the curriculum doesn't always keep up with. Our field is so fast paced. Security is so changing quickly. And you can also, there's so many good resources like CTFs. The fact that they've, we've blown up, you know, I talked a little bit about like the early DEF CON history. 
they've they've grown so much. At one point, I had a tracker where I was counting counting the number of CTFs, and there were more than one a weekend. So it used to be like every weekend you would have like a CTF, and then it got to be where there's literally multiple every single weekend, like, and you you couldn't play in them all because there was there was just too many. And I think there's there's up. It's well more than that now, right? Like they, there's just so many opportunities. Now they're specialized and there's ones all about the world. There's in-person ones, there's online ones. And like that's an incredible resource because you can get practice on both this offense and de- defensive side for free in these events that are run by this community of, of hobbyists. And well, you know, a lot of them are professionals, but they're doing it kind of as their hobby. Uh, and it's unbelievable, let alone all the other, you know, paid options and online training and certifications, which, you know, there's there's some value in some of those. But like, it's just, it's unbelievable the resources that people have nowadays. Well, and the other thing you alluded to earlier and is this is another one of those weird areas where you can pick up people that that are doing, you said game hacks in particular. It reminded me of the movie Catch mm-hmm. Me If You Can, right? It was uh, Peter Ab- Abagnale or whatever, who was... Abagnale, yeah. Who was Clayton Jackson doing all these crazy things? It's a fantastic movie, by the way, if you've never seen it with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Yep. Uh, but he was a crook that basically they caught and they flipped him, basically, right? Now, yep. obviously, this is not something you recommend. You don't <laughs> recommend people to get into the criminal aspects of this. But like you said, game hacks is kind of like this, you know, this area where it's not really a crime necessarily, but it does kind of teach you how to hack. And so th- that is a definite difference with this industry over many other technical industries. I, I know a lot of people who so so actually it is interesting in the last you know decade or two you see a lot of people that like got into software cracking or game cheats or game hacking and you know the the, the consequences the penalties I would still say those are sort of unethical activities depending on how you do them but it's sort of low low key right like kids kids would be kids kind of level of, mm-hmm. uh, of stuff you know you go back even further and you know twenty. 30 years ago, there were a lot of people that were straight up hacking into servers. And it was, again, the same kind of like, oh, kids will be kids, hijinks level of like stuff that a lot of that, you know, people were just for fun hacking into servers. And now these same people are CTO of billion dollar companies and, you know, mm-hmm. friends that I know that have like, it, you know, they grew up and this became a real thing. And it went from like this toy that they were just doing to mess with their friends. You know, they would literally be breaking into the servers only to screw with their friend. Like that was the entire purpose in this back and forth cat and mouse kind of game. And then, you know, now there's much more serious consequences for it. But the great news is, again, now there are CTFs. There's these other environments that you can practice and learn these skills that are entirely legal and far less likely to get you thrown in jail. Uh, (laughs) So not entirely. There's been some fun stories about people who accidentally almost got thrown in jail on a a trip to Korea one time about, anyway, uh, (laughs) playing CTF. Well, the other great story uh, so that, was in the, that was in the news in the last year or two was the, I think it was a high school kid who rickrolled his school system. Did you, did you, did you see that one? Where, I haven't seen that one, no. Uh, oh, yeah. He somehow, met, like the last day of school, managed to get like six different schools in his school system to show the video, the rickroll video. And yeah, yeah, you, could, yeah, you couldn't get off the video. And thankfully, this, is, this could have easily have gone the wrong way, certainly with like the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and things like this guy could have been probably yeah. locked up for doing this, but you know. The, the people involved were like, ah, nice going, because he didn't really do anything harmful, and he, he kind of tipped yep. them off, and you know it was, and it was let off like the kids will be kids, and I'm sure that guy's got a career ahead of him now, uh, <laughs> where he could have yeah. been, he could have just as easily been, you know, probably jailed under some, you know, weird interpretation of the CFFA. Absolutely. Well, and the other opportunity people have now are bug bounties, too, right, which also didn't exist 20 years ago. Like, this whole trend of bug bounties where a company is paying you, um, like, I was one of the first people to get United's million-mile bounty for for a uh, remote code execution bug in their infrastructure. Wait, they, wait, they paid um, you in frequent flyer miles? <sighs> okay, so the taxes, yeah, it's a, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. I'll, I'll link you some old tweets where I was not happy with it because, yeah, it was, it was a little awkward and weird. Like, they're non-fungible. Like, I can't transfer them. can't right. give them to somebody else. But I had to pay taxes on them at the valuation that they made up. It, but, but on the other hand, I did fly my whole family of five to Japan and England. And <laughs> wife and I took business class to Europe. So, like, yeah, I, I got some nice trips out of it. But it was also almost $10,000 in taxes. So, so there was wow. that, too. But, All right, so bug bounties. Finish your thought on bug bounties. Yeah. So, so bug bounties, again, are another opportunity that a lot of people have nowadays. You see, you know, a lot of professionals don't engage in bug bounties because they're just, it's not worth their time and kind of kind of effort. Like, I, I was kind of doing it on a lark when I did the United one because they just announced it and a friend was like, hey, I'm working on a thing, and it, you know, but I... I I was I was running a company. I wasn't doing the stuff. It's just kind of like the side thing. But there are a lot of people who are starting in their careers and they build a resume through bug bounties, which are literally just companies are saying, hey, listen, attack our websites. Here's what's in bounds. Here's what's out of bounds. If you find something and you tell us, we'll either pay you, we'll give you a t-shirt, we'll reward you with 
something good. And oftentimes, it's it's producing cash pay, payouts if you do enough of these. And so there are people that have have built careers doing these, these these kind of bug bounties. So it's a great way to start. Although I will say that there is like this very tip of the iceberg. Very few people are making a full time full mm-hmm. living wage kind of on, on bug bounties. But it's an amazing thing for people to start, and then often will turn into a, a full time gig, you know, elsewhere. So you you mentioned red teaming and blue teaming. Let's talk about some some hacker terms real quick just to get them uh, out in the open. So we talk about white hats and black hats and even gray hats, and we talk about red teams yep. and blue teams. Go through some of the lingo, so because these get thrown around a lot, and I think a lot of people are don't have a, a firm understanding of what these things really mean. Yeah, and, and to some degree, there's even you know disagreement within the community. So for example, I interpret black hat, white hat maybe a little differently than, than some people do. Some people would say black hat means illegal and white hat means you do it legally for for the good guys. And then gray hat is like, well, it's maybe in between. Maybe you, you know, like for example, we had, you know, Marcus Hutchins who who stopped that button, but also wrote some malware in his past. And so maybe he transitioned from black mm-hmm. to gray to white, you know, like the, so there's maybe some debate about those terms. I actually, honestly, proudly identified as a black hat when I worked on offensive security because I would always say black hat means I write exploits. I hack Mm. stuff. Now, building a gun is not illegal. Shooting a gun in certain contexts is not illegal, but certainly there are many illegal uses of it. So it kind of depends on how it's it's done and how it's used. But so I I always attribute black hat to offense, white hat to defense, and gray hat meaning you kind of kind of pitch it. But again, some people would just say more of just look at the legality. And a black hat is somebody who breaks the law and a white hat is somebody who doesn't. And I think they're both arguably valid definitions. Um, There's no sort of canonical one. Red team and blue team are kind of borrowed from like military lingo and parlance. And there's a little bit of kind of bleed through in the security community from from that for, for kind of obvious reasons, because there's not a lot of domains in the world where it's an active human adversary you're, you're competing mm. against in terms of they're actively trying to kind of break in or do something malicious day to day. I mean, you have like police and military with the, these kind of like environments. And so security is just really interesting. The You know, it's not like a, a scientist who's researching a problem. The microbes don't get smarter well, maybe they evolve a little bit, but like the, generally the microbes aren't adapting as rapidly as a human can to what you're doing. And so like in security, we are dealing with a very thoughtful, intelligent adversary. And so red team is the adversary. Red team's the person trying to break in, trying to defeat a security mechanism. The blue team is the defensive team trying to protect the system. And you know, sometimes you'll hear like purple teams. There are in other events, for example, like that CCDC, the Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition, they'll have white team, green team. I don't remember what all the terms are. Like the white teams are like the, the judges, the red team are the professional paid attackers who are attacking the students, the students are the blue team, the green team builds infrastructure. Like there's, you know, they, they hmm. can delineate even, even further. But yeah, red and blue are the main ones that you hear talked about. And of course, white hat, black hat. All right, so let's, uh, for the benefit of the audience, let's, let's dig into a little bit more like some of the details of how a cybersecurity CTF works. Like we, you, you alluded to some of these things, but like how does a typical capture the flag contest set up? What, you know, what are flags? How, how does one capture them with some examples? And do, you know, how often do you work alone versus it in teams? And, and how do you figure out who won? So, so all great, great questions. So, I'll start with like the the structure, and and I like to actually, if you go back to a talk that um, I gave with with Mike Walker, who was a DARPA PM uh, years ago. DARPA actually sponsored, like the DoD's research arm, sponsored a hacking competition. Sponsored a CTF at DEFCON several years ago between machine to machine, and it was all against like you know rise of the robots and like is the AI you know AI is taking over and all this stuff, and and it was a, a CTF done just for machines. And then the winner actually went and played DEFCON CTF against the humans. Uh, it didn't win. Again, we could have a whole other conversation mm-hmm. about that whole, that kind of subs. That was really anything. But uh, that, that talk in particular has a lot of really good visualization around some of these concepts of the styles of events. And so there's some, there's some nice stuff in there. But the defensive exercises or blue team exercises are, are I've got a server, I defend it, and I'm scored based on how much I keep the bad guys out. Um, those are less common. Those tend to be only like the college kind of events. The more popular, like I said, the weekend ones, the events that you go and participate in, those tend to be what we call Jeopardy style. And it's because there's usually a scoreboard that looks like Jeopardy. This was mm. actually started, oh goodness, what year was this? Maybe 2013-ish, 2013 era. There was a, a DEFCON CTF was run by a group called Kenshoto. 
And they started the qualification round for DEF CON where you had to apply to kind of get in. And their qualification round had this format. It was a scoreboard. And across each cat, you know, top line is a category. It's ponables, network, forensics, reverse engineer, whatever the, the category was. And then, of course, one to 500 on the points. And so for many years, many CTFs kind of modeled this. Mm. And to this day, we actually still will often refer to challenges as a 100-point challenge or a 500-point challenge being the like, yeah, it should take you like an hour, 30 minutes, 10 minutes, easy to like, they'll take an expert half a day or a day, 500-point challenge to, to solve. And so that's kind of like the scale um, that, that still gets used. Although, honestly, there's a new technique nowadays where they self-balance because it turns out guessing the difficulty is really hard. And so mm. nowadays what they do is they just say, well, listen, the fewer teams that solve this, the harder it must have been. Uh, and so it's worth more. And every time somebody solves it, the point value actually goes down, oh, which is actually really nice for, yeah. for fairness. Yeah. There's interesting like game balance aspects to it too, right? In terms right, of like yeah. strategy and, and how you go about it. But we still say 100-point challenge, 500-point challenge, even if the CTF doesn't do that, just is kind of part of the part of the, the, the nomenclature now. And so, so Jeopardy styles, again, there's a bunch of challenges, and they're kind of self-contained. Maybe I download a file, and, and I have to analyze it, extract it, figure it out, and there's a piece of text in that file that says flag, colon, whatever. But it's not just like in there as text. I actually have to like decode the file or decrypt it. Sometimes, actually, it's encryption challenges, the whole crypto categories, where I've got to find flaws in encryption. And that, that usually involves a lot of like reading the latest research papers. Mm. It's kind of the joke amongst the crypto CTF crowd that like you've got to like stay up to date on all the latest academic research because there's some new attack on this thing that you've got to like implement a uh, practical attack of. And, um, but there's lots of, lots of really cool still stuff there. And then sometimes it's actually a server. The organizers are running a server. It's a web server or whatever kind of server. And they may give me some source code or maybe they just tell me, like, here's where it is. You figure it out. And it's my job to figure out where the flag is, find it, create an exploit, break in, get on the server and get the flag. And so that's Jeopardy style. And then I mentioned earlier, like attack defense, which is more traditional, like, running around the field where I get a server, you get a server. I'm trying to break into your server. You're trying to break into my server. Maybe each server is running a bunch of separate binaries that are all like on different ports some different users and different permissions and and my job is to just get as many flags as i can and uh there's like the time domain is interesting too right because if i am the first one to break in and then i can keep exploiting you over time i can collect more flags usually mm. in, a, in an attack defense ctf the flags change uh, hmm. over time it's not just one flag and it's just the total number of flags or i've proved it i've done i've got some points we'll see how many other people solve it in an attack defense ctf i actually have to maintain my access to continually hack you and you're trying to block me you're trying to watch the network figure out how i got in patch the binary prevent me from getting in put up a firewall rule whatever it depends on on the event and so that's a that's a really stressful like that's how defcon ctf is and it's incredibly stressful i enjoy <laughs> Jeopardy more personally. Mm. It's, I think it's fun. It's just less kind of stress, but mm -hmm. it's certainly, you know, for people that really like the high stakes, really like active battling and proving you're the best. That's you know, that's that's attack defense. But there's 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 less of those competitions. You asked about team size earlier. I think mm -hmm. that's a really really good question because uh, a lot of people will say like, wow, you know, I don't have a team. How do I get started? And sometimes the answer is just find people around you and you badger them, you bug them until you get them to play with you because it is so much better to play with a team. There mm -hmm. are certainly individuals and there's a lot of CTFs that you can kind of play as individuals but any of the top events require teams of all very very good people so you know defcon CTF there were 16 teams in the finals and i don't know the are the hard numbers but i know there were several teams of 60 or 100 people and uh, you know there's no small teams anymore so the average team size has grown tremendously back when you know when i was more active in defcon a decade ago you could play as a four person team maybe or six or eight was very common and 12 was like decent and then like 20 was whoa we got yeah. a big team there and you know, a couple of, of larger teams. But nowadays, it, it can take a, a, a very big team. Now, they're really inefficient. Yeah. Um, I've been like the manager and organizer, but it's like any big team. Mythical right? man like, you have a lot right? Of people. N squared problems. Exactly. That's exactly right, right? So it doesn't scale like, just because you have more people, but right. there are certain things that, that, you know, you can do better at. I know that, obviously, you've been doing this for a long time and you're at, at, at competing at a very high level, but there are, for people that might be interested in dabbling in this, there are much, much simpler, lower lower stress, you know, individual CTFs that people can do. If I wanted to do this, where would I find one? Are they in person? Are they online? Are they, are they online? Are they both? Does it cost money to enter? What kind of things can you win? You know, and, and if I wanted to, to start at a lower level, what, are, what kind of options are available? A lot of stuff there. Yeah. So first, as in-person online, most tend to be online, 
so the in-person ones tend to be more at the like the expert field because you're going to a conference you're mm-hmm. kind of all in like this is this is part of what you do and so you're paying to travel and go to a conference and there maybe you know there's prize money and you're you're part of a team so in-person tends to be more like that but not always there's a lot of like b-sides conferences around the world that will have cts that they'll put on so you know you could find them at a lot of the a lot of security conferences if you ever go to a security conference Odds are pretty good. Mm. There is a CTF associated with that conference. Like they're just so common now. It's kind of like just just normal to see. To participate, there's a couple of, of great things you can do. So I always like to shout out Plaid CTF, P L A I D CTF. Plaid CTF is run. So PPP, Plaid Parliament of Ponage, is the CTF team that came out of Carnegie Mellon. And it's a tongue twister. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were actually a part of the team that won DEFCON this year, which was called MMM, which I don't even It was something. I called them the Mighty Ducks because it was like something Mallard's, Mag- <laughs> Mallard Magistrate. Uh, yeah, I don't remember the, the whole name. But they were, PPP was part of the group that, that joined MMM. PPP. Was part of kind of the original like CTF group out of Carnegie Mellon, and Carnegie Mellon has for many years now run this Plaid CTF, which is explicitly designed to be approachable, accessible. Beginners can get into it. The very very beginning level stuff is like, let's show you what binary is, and you can decode a binary string into you know, into ASCII stuff that you can just look up or Google or find search online. You know, it's really meant to be accessible, all the way up to the highest end, which, which actually approaches like sort of pro tier, you know, like you know, high end grade like CTFs. It has an amazing difficulty curve. They've done a really good job with that. And they also have interesting visuals. Uh, there's a whole separate thing about part of why I was interested in Hackasat is because the very first year we participated, we built like this 3D model that showed sort of what was kind of happening and it had scoreboards that were like in space. And like I think there's a lot that the CTF community needs to do to make this easier to to follow and mm. to see what's going mm-hmm. on and to learn what's happening and to like understand it. And so I'm really interested in the kind of visualization. Plaid CTF has had several years where it was like a little cute game interface where you ran around in and talked to NPCs and you would get challenges huh. and you could, you know. And so, and there's, there's, there's actually several like that. So we actually built one for Ghost and the Shellcode which was a ShmooCon many, many years ago. That was my CTF I ran for, for about six years with some friends. And we, we built a whole MMO, a huge full 3D actual MMO called Choose Your Pwn Adventure, uh, <laughs> Pwn Adventure for short. And Pwn Adventure 2 and 3 were like actual, like almost, I mean, you would play these. They were legit fun games, like 3D games you would download. We've done oh, NES wow. games, you know, a bunch of other ones. And the challenges are baked into the game you have to like run around actually hack the game or like you get some you know i don't know so there's a whole oh man there's just so much stuff. sorry i, I geek out on the stuff because there is there's so many interesting things that have happened in this in this community i find those games really engaging for people right because again a lot of people start hacking games or having visual element or like seeing like being able to see what kind of happens and what it gets you versus just a text prompt and a file and some bytes and so i, I do find those really as, as one good way to kind of get people suckered into what's actually a, a career right you know i think you're playing a game well there's a group of uh, there's a local group that uh, security group here that i participate with on a very infrequent basis the great group of people uh, and they used to have like a first friday of the month where they do an online ctf together we get to we'd get on a zoom call like this and there was a i'll look up the service and i'll put it in the show notes but there was a service that was free that you could get into and they had varying levels and they'd say okay this week we're going to do this one and they have named contests and they have and they assign difficulty levels to each one of them and there's there's flags and they're usually a server you need to hack into and there's there's clues you go to the main website and then you you'll get some clue about well maybe i should check on this port and see what's going on there uh and so that's been kind of fun so uh yeah i will uh, put a link in the show notes to the for folks about that so there's 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 uh those are usually called war games and Hmm. that's kind of like the term that you would search for so the idea is that typically when we say ctf and it's again kind of just weird sort of like this is just what the community calls it i don't know how it evolved this way ctf is just it's an event it runs for 48 hours or maybe a couple days or a week or whatever but like and it's over and it will still be online maybe you can go download the challenges but you're not like in the running war games are the exact same thing but just meant to be like it's just online anybody can drop in drop out and Mm. it it is is meant to be solved over a longer period of time it's not as much of a time crunch and, and so that's kind of a distinction used internally. So ctftime.org is the main website that the, the Capture the Flag community tracks all their events on. And actually has scores and rankings and logins. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's a whole thing. Uh, but you can you currently see it's clearly a global sport. You know, right now, the teams from around the world are on the top 10. So it's three Chinese teams, two Russian teams, uh, a Swiss team, two other teams that are don't have a country, but I know, for example, you know, one of them has a lot of U.S. grad students. So there may be some international backgrounds, but they're all living in the U.S. as well as a, a bunch of U.S. Uh, students that, that form that particular team. 
so like, you can see like where they are from around the world, but you also see all the events. You can see upcoming events, you can see past events, and you can see the challenges. You can go and download all the challenges from all these old past events. So you can go find uh, some of them and, and download them. The other ones are like pwnable.kr um, is another war game style one, and pwnable.tw, I think, and reversing.kr. There's a whole bunch of different of these websites that just have, yeah, lots of cool challenges. Uh, some of them have write-ups. Don't don't look at the write up if you can help it, right? You always like don't cheat yourself. Try to spoilers, yeah. Like, exactly, right? Like it's like looking at like the game sheets. Yeah, you know? like sometimes you just you, you got to get to it. You want to move on and get gun unstuck, but like you got to grind a little bit. Um, you'll you'll <laughs> learn better and you'll enjoy it and you'll enjoy it more. But there are you know write ups for some of these things. Well, that's actually something I loved about being a software engineer, and, and and I think it translates to hacking as well. Is code is almost is a lingua franca. I mean, it, it's it, and thankfully yeah. for me, it's most languages are written in English. So like the verbs and the nouns and the things I that know. are part of I the know. language, We're spoiled. Are, we are spoiled because it's in English. But nevertheless, it's it's a language in, unto itself. And you know, once you learn that, you could learn to you know learn how to control computers, and it's it's something that anybody could do around the planet, regardless of where you're from, which is great. Okay, so uh, this is one of the things I think is really cool. One of the things that I don't think a lot of people realize, uh, or maybe don't, is that a lot of hackers, most hackers, you know, everything from what we call script kiddies, who are the, you know, the people that are really just like, mm-hmm. I don't know how to do this, you know, but I, I found this tool that lets me do it. Run a program. Yeah. Right. All the way up to, you know, expert red teamers, you know, rely on a plethora of hacking tools to do their job. I mean, it's it's a part of what you do, and part of what you're being a professional is knowing where to find these tools and how to use them. So, you know, any programmer worth their salt has a tool to, you know, we'll, we will automate anything. If I, have to, if I had to do something more than twice, I wrote a script to do it because I got tired of it. Hey, absolutely. <laughs> right. That's why Python blew up, I think, right, in the security right. community was because, like, you know, Ruby and Perl and Python, were, but, like, Python was just so quick to, like, automate and prototype. And yep. I used bash scripts for far too long before I right. finally got converted to like to Python, right? But like absolutely. Like we just we want to we want to automate things and have it have it be be scripted as much as possible. So I mean I know you've created one of these yourself, which you're free to talk about, but what are what are some of these tools that hacker use? Like let's name a few of like the the big ones, what do they do? And then and then I gotta ask, are there are there ethical issues with creating and distributing these tools? Because they these tools, while they're great for CTFs yeah. or whatever, could also be used for real hacking. So give me some thoughts absolutely. on that too. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So so there's a lot of, of tools. And, you know, it's actually an interesting debate in the CTF community about how much should the CTF be tool agnostic and how much of it is just like, oh, once you know the right tool, you just win. Mm. And usually a good CTF, it's not just a matter of, in fact, this is actually particularly, so there's a whole category of challenges called, you know, stego challenges, steganography, right, which is the, the art of hidden messages. Literally, yes. steganography is, is hidden messages. And so the idea is that I give you an image and hidden inside my image, it's natural for that style of CTF I described earlier, right? For that, that Jeopardy thing where I just download an image and I, you tell me there's, there's a hidden flag. Okay, and I got to find it. I got to figure out how it's hidden in this image. But for the many years, steganography was, was sort of a joke or at least uh, ridiculed a lot because it was just like, oh, just find the right open source tool and then just run it, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was find the right thing and then run it and then you win. And nobody thinks that was all that fun, like mm-hmm. after, especially as the skill level kind of increases. And so there is this, this interesting sort of debate in the community of how much should tools, at least as far as the game side of CTFs, now from a real world skills and from the CTFs that are more like real world based, huge difference, right? That's a large part of what we do as any kind of professional these days online is knowing the right tool for the job and is building a fluency and a familiarity with these tools. And, and even the best CTFs, they're all using tools. It's just a question of, you know, how much is, like, are they driving and auto- building on top of it and using their knowledge to, like, do the right thing with a tool versus just kind of clicking, clicking one button. Um, so, like, with that out of the way, you know, uh, on the website, for example, you have Shodan, which, you know, is a, is a really cool, it's, it's more of a web service, right, where it's, it's just out there scanning the internet uh, and you can just use to just find things. There have been several CTFs that just sort of rely, you know, require you to like look in Shodan for all the stuff that might already be running in their infrastructure. And it will tell you what kind of servers are running and what kind of show you screenshots of machines if they have unconfigured like, you know, remote connections. And there's, there's a lot of nifty stuff. That one tends to be a little bit more real world. Burp Proxy is a you know, real famous web you know, proxy. And so it, it just sits between me and my browser and the internet, right? So it's taking everything that my browser does and stopping it and kind of let you look at it or extract it or make a copy of it, um, modify it maybe, and then send it to the internet and then vice versa on the way back. And you can also do some extra scanning. It has a bunch of other features. Uh, that's a, for anybody that does web app security. That's been one of yeah. the main tools for, for years and years and years. I mean, I used to use that regularly when I was, when I was doing more web, web security. Um, I, I, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, my background is more on like the binary uh, reverse engineering side. And so we built a tool called Binary Ninja about seven years ago 
ironically, from our CTF background, like we actually first built it for CTFs because we were playing these CTFs and we wanted a tool that was sort of faster and quicker, and not just in its analysis speed, but even like in the workflows and the hotkeys and just how we could get stuff done because CTFs are so like, mm. you got to get it done. And then after mm-hmm. a while, we're like, you know, we're putting all this work into this thing. Like this could actually be a real commercial product. And so we actually rewrote it from scratch, uh, released the old version as, as open source. And that's it. It is a it, but it's like it's very niche, right? This is for people that are taking apart binary applications. Like when you write your source code, it gets compiled, it turns from the human readable language you're just talking about down to the zeros and ones that I know you're familiar with, but you know not all your listeners right. may. Like you can literally look at zeros and ones and then turn it back into like this is what it's going to tell the the CPU to do, the computer to do. And that's basically what, what our software does is it facilitates that translation process all the way back up into source code. So it's trying to turn something that's been compiled where we've thrown away all those handy names like verbs and nouns that you, know, you mentioned yes. earlier uh, and they're gone and we just have to kind of figure them out and then hope from context we can understand what it's doing or hope from from various debug information, other clues, uh, we can we can kind of do this. That's that's what uh, Binary Ninja does. Metasploit maybe is another common one, right? Yeah, so hey, that's actually good. You know, some CTFs are more, I would say, problem based, and some CTFs are more system based, right? I would more pen test versus more vulnerability research. So I would say a distinction between a vulnerability research is here is a single binary, here is a single application, no one's ever seen it before, we wrote it just for the CTF, find the flaw. Metasploit will never do anything for that particular thing because Metasploit is essentially a prepackaged collection of known exploits and vulnerabilities. The other type of scenario is, I mean, actually, it has a lot of other stuff too. Don't right. make it, yeah, don't for me that's a Swiss Army knife. Yeah, it does a whole bunch of other stuff as well too. I used to use the the, the shell coded coder that they had built into it for many years, but it, it also, you know. Uh, the other types of events are more system-based. And that's actually, you know, more real-world in a lot of ways because it's it's like, I don't care if your one bespoke custom app has a vulnerability if it turns out you're running this old unpatched thing from three years ago. Uh, right. My United Bug Bounty, where I got those million miles, was the, mo- like, I've written actual legitimate zero-day, I've beaten Pony Award winners to awards, I've been Defcon Black Hat CTF teams, and the thing I'm most famous for this United thing was they were just running some old software. Like, they just <laughs> had some outdated open source and so I didn't even have to try it. I could just look up the version and be like, oh, you're, you're, you're vulnerable to, you know, to this attack here. Um, but it was finding it in the first place was the tricky part. Right. So looking through DNS scanning, uh, DNS records, getting virtual hosts, using DNS proofforcing, that kind of stuff, you would to even, to even find the host. And that's more of like the real world, right? You know, right, kind of right, scenario right. where it's not just this bespoke custom vulnerability, but it's just probing the network, mapping it, understanding it. You got like Nmap, right? Which is a network scanner, which is used to just kind of scan the network. And it's a little bit like Shodan, but like way higher powered. And you direct it and guide it. It's not a service that's already kind of been run for you. And yeah, Metasploit is like that, like I said, that collection of, of a lot of tools and exploits and things and, and even post-exploitation techniques, right? Like, so, okay, I've got a vulnerability on a host, but now that I'm there, can I actually use that host to scan internally? Uh, mm-hmm. Can I pivot in it? Can I run my payload inside of it? And there's a, there's a whole lineage of other like offensive-focused tools that, that pen testers will use and also network admins will use those. I mean, when I was a network admin, I would use those not only to just scan my network, but I would use them like, is this exploit real? Is this a false positive? Can I actually, it really matters to me if this is... Like, yes, one scanner is telling me it's a vulnerability, but it's not actually exploitable. Well, okay, that's, you know, lower lower severity threshold. So, you know, even offensive tools are quite frequently used by, by defenders. And I think another thing that people maybe not understand in the hacking world is a lot of these things are chained exploits, meaning that when you finally, you know, when, when someone hacks a system, it's not like they got the one thing wrong. Uh, it's, someone screwed something up and they're in. I mean, that does happen. But, yeah, but I mean, a lot of times it's, well, first I did this, which gave me a beachhead here. Then I used that to upgrade yep. to this. And I used that to get over here. And then I went laterally over there. It's it, 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 a lot of times it's really these, it's it's not, so it's not just knowing how to do one thing. You've got to find multiple issues a lot of times and those together when you put them all together, it becomes really bad. Absolutely. A, a great example of that, I think, is like phone security. You know, you look at how like iOS works. And, you know, when, when Apple first launched it, um, they were one of the first people to really do trusted boot uh, on a global scale. Uh, arguably, some of the console manufacturers had kind of been doing that, too. Uh, if you look at some of the game systems where they were kind of locking things down. But, but arguably, iOS was, was really the first consumer product that I think drove like how much you could do that's like kind of apple's walled garden right mm-hmm. is the, the term that gets used and what we mean when we say apple has a walled garden is we mean you've got to be approved by apple to run a program on your phone my laptop is made by apple and i can download and run any piece of software i want on it as a user and you know if there is an exploit in my browser uh and it decides to like put a file on my hard drive and run it nothing stops other than the security that just the browser itself does that's 
not entirely true now. Actually, there's a little bit right, of uh, right, right. stuff. But like, let's just you know, for the sake of argument, it's mostly true. Whereas on my phone, it's mostly not true because I actually can't just run code on on my phone. I actually Apple has to approve every piece of code that runs on my phone. And so the exploit chain, like if you want to actually have an exploit that will from like a text message or from a web page take over the phone and survive being able to be rebooted requires anywhere from like three to seven to more discrete separate vulnerabilities and exploits that exploit them all chained together. And any one of them not being there would mean you kind of have to reroute it. And like that is part of what makes like offensive research so fascinating and fun as a, as an exploit writer is that like, and that's why I, I didn't, like finding vulnerabilities, I liked exploiting vulnerabilities. Like that to me, and that's why, you know, CTS are so fun because like finding them is great and oftentimes defensively all you need to do is to find it. But sometimes um, even just as a pure defender, you need to know the exploitability of it. Is this something that actually the current mitigations really block and therefore it's lower priority? Or or for example, somebody actually reported a bug to uh, recently in Binary Ninja and they started with, okay, if I have the ability to write any file to the hard drive and I over overwrite a file inside of the Binary Ninja application folder, and I was like, well, hold on, like that's, you're already writing files, like there's a lot of other, like maybe there's a bug, maybe we can fix it, but like that's not a very serious vulnerability because you're not really, you know, violating mm -hmm. any kind of kind of security property at that point. That's just how my software works. You, you can run a plugin too. You can just write a Python file to this folder and we'll also run that too. And that, you know, doesn't make it a vulnerability. So I, you know, it is, it is interesting though that like this chain of exploits and how maybe one dies, then you got to patch it and find something else mm -hmm. to kind of get through it is, is fascinating. And it applies to both like a phone, but also to like an entire network, the exact same problem, right? Street, right? Like right. you look at something like a Stuxnet, right? Where <laughs> it had like these several vulnerabilities to achieve the goal that they wanted to do. And it's, you know, it's fascinating how it kind of all gets kind of packaged together. Well, and I, I think this is something that I recommend to a lot of people that are looking, if they're worried about security, if they're, if they're the kind of people that are they're worried about doing banking online or worried about doing something online and getting hacked or getting viruses, it's, it's really gotten to the point now where I could, I could just tell the people, you know, what you could probably do is just get an iPad and a keyboard. Yeah, be because, or a Chrome, Chrome OS or, or an iPad. Absolutely. I'd tell the exact same thing. Because if you're just surfing the web and running some very simple apps, and most of the apps are are web apps now anyway, or can be web apps. Absolutely. You, yep. All you really need is basically a browser in a portable machine, and you're and you're good to go. And and because they kind of came separate, because a lot of these the, the iPhones and iPads came later, the computers they kind of had a chance to learn from the mistakes of computers, and and they. People Very weren't true. used to the conveniences that they had with computers, and so you could they kind of built them from the ground up, so you didn't shoot yourself in the foot as much as you could with a with a computer. So yeah, um, yeah, that that that's a great. I think that's a great piece of advice. I, I tell my family members the exact same thing. You know, most of my family is all Apple, so I just tell them get iPads uh, and throw a keyboard on it, and you're done. Chrome OS being the alternative, I think, for folks who don't like the wall garden, but similar kind of security model. All right, so if we've managed to tickle anybody's fancy, if we've managed to get some people intrigued who may be not doing this for a living or may not be in a technical field even, but want to kind of play around with this, what's, you know, how might a layperson approach this and, and, and dabble in this and start learning about it and see if it's something they might want to get into? What, do you have any resources maybe you could recommend to people or, or, or ways to approach this? I would recommend a couple of things. First, uh, there's a YouTuber by the name of Live Overflow. And so fantastic YouTuber who puts out a whole bunch of content. He's done a whole lot on like CTFs and on how to get started CTFs, how to develop skills, how to learn in security. Fantastic catalog, huge, huge back catalog at this point of a lot of interesting topics. And he's great if you just kind of want to sit back and consume and, hmm. and sort of like see more about like what's going on. And, and he talks about what goes into it. He'll talk about the high end. And he'll talk about the low end. He'll talk about as he learned and he developed his skills and kind of where he started to where, to where he is today. I think that you could you could poke directly at something like uh, Pwn Adventure Sorcery, and I'll send you the link afterwards so you okay. can put it in the show notes. Yeah. But that is like browser-based hackable game that we built that actually uses like assembly coding, but kind of teaches it to you a little oh, bit. Wow. You're only going to make about a 30 minutes into it if you don't know any kind of assembly, and it, it's, <laughs> you're going to hit a school curve. But I think it'll at least like get people like it'll show you that like you can actually start to like um, overlap this sort of games and uh, hacking and coding all kind of, it's actually similar there's a, there's a whole st style of like the Zaktronics style games I don't know if you're familiar with that Steve no. um, where they're sort of like programming as video game it's, uh, it's hard okay. to describe uh, I've seen but, things but like they're that. fascinating yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like it's a genre and there's some interesting ones but like this is sorcery is specifically not just programming but like hacking, reversing, exploiting as 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 kind of kind of game element. I think that's a, a good way to get on. Plaid CTF, as I mentioned, is a fantastic resources uh, resource to begin with. 
I do say back to your question about team size, really connecting with other people, it, mm. it really does make a big difference having a good group around you. I like playing CTFs in person. I like sitting in a room, people and running around and yelling and two people going off and solving a problem, and then splitting up and you know doing something else. I, I the feel of that to me is is so much of what what I associate with CTF. But there is like a subreddit, for example, called Open to All. But anyways, if if you Google open to all CTF. It is specifically like a group that started on Reddit with the express purpose of, hey, anybody can join us. We want new people. We want folks to start. And it's a great, it's a great way uh, to kind of be, uh, begin. So hopefully it gets, gets people started. Uh, and I'm always happy to, to take questions of people. I, I get random folks over, you know, from all the other stuff I've done over the years, people reach out, and I'm always happy to. Um, How would people find you? Are you are you literally opening it up to anybody who wants to get out, anybody in the audience who might want to talk to you? If they want to talk to you, you know what? If you go to binary.ninja, there's a chat box, and that goes to like one of three people at my company, and I'll keep an eye on it. So if you just say, "Hey Jordan, I want to get a hold of you," I will actually see it on on my phone, and and I'll and I'll reply. So I, I, I don't mind. I actually really like getting people into security. Now you might not like what I have to say because honestly, the <laughs> the best answer of how to like get into this is like you just go do it. You just right. do it. There's no magic book. There's no magic steps. You just start doing it. Start failing. Start trying. Uh, the more time you put in, the better you'll get. Well, and to add on to that is back to the CTF that we were doing with some of my uh, folks here at the local mm-hmm. group is it's good to have other people because if you get stuck on one simple thing, a lot of times it's like you're just looking at it wrong and it's someone say, well, it can, can help you without even giving it to you. Like, well, did you look about this or did you think about this? Like, yes. oh yeah, right. Or or a mentor, uh, having somebody you could kind of yep. work with you who's got a little more experience than you and help you through. There can be some, really, <laughs> there could be some really frustrating, they're puzzles essentially. There's, and so if, you, Absolutely. if you're looking at a puzzle, you're just not used to doing this kind of puzzle and you just you're not getting it like it's it's a paradigm shift that you're not getting so it just takes some time that one extra person so having somebody else with you can make a huge difference i think and, and help you through this but certainly as you're getting started yeah and even if they don't know the answer right like even right. if they i mean the mentor is great if you can get it but even without that just somebody else that you're side by side with who's equally struggling will make mm. you okay i'm not i'm not the fool this is just hard and we're learning together and you know you, you kind of work through it i think that absolutely makes 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 a huge difference our last question before we go: What what's next for Hackasat? I guess Hackasat Four. It sounds like uh, this is the penultimate year, so it sounds like there yep. must be something big for next year. And then will they be? Will they be a DefCon Thirty One? That that is the plan. I think there's still logistics being kind of sorted. Actually, next week we actually have a, a dry run. We're we're going off to to practice for this year. Hackasat Three's finals, which which happens in October. Just next week we have a kind of planning meeting. Where we're going to talk about the the, the plans, uh, and that's actually a dry run and a prep for the final event. So this year's final event for for Hackasat Three is uh, October 20th. It'll be streamed online. You'll be able to watch the updates. Hmm. There's a bunch of really cool scoreboards and visualizations. There's like some some 3D stuff to like kind of see what's happening with the satellites as it as it happens like in the sort of kind of virtual domain but next year so yes at defcon 31 that is the plan although i'm also doing something with live ctf for defcon so we'll, we'll see how <laughs> i may have to clone myself <laughs> but next year uh the plan is to have teams in person and an actual satellite in space that they're hacking and defending and attacking they're oh, they're wow. launching a satellite oh, for wow. this event in year four it's going to be super super exciting is it like a one of those little cubesat kind of things it is, and that's basically what they've been kind of practicing on to this point, where all various different CubeSat models, different architectural components, they have, oh man, like, like it was ADCS, the attitude controls, I don't even remember all the terminology, like I'm not the space guy, right? Like all the, you know, Jason and, and the teams that have been building the stuff, they can tell you all the different actual components that have been doing it, and then again, yeah, next year, it's literally going to be flying above our heads as as the hacking happens. Oh, that's too cool. I definitely, I mean, I'm hooked on DEF CON at this point, so I'm, I'm planning to be there next year, so I will definitely come find you at uh, DC31. That'll be, that'll be a riot. Thanks again, Jordan, for coming on the show. This was great. Thanks for having me. I want to thank Jordan again for coming on the show. That was a lot of fun. I learned some really cool stuff there. I hope you did too. I hope you found that interesting, even if you're not a hacker. Uh, I just think it's fascinating to see how this works and to know that behind the scenes, some of our best cybersecurity experts out there are honing their skills through these contests. And uh, it it really is something that you could try out. I know you might think, I have I have no skills whatsoever in this arena. But there's a lot of great material out there to help you get started and just play around with this stuff. This community is so welcoming and so helpful. I mean, Jordan just told you how to get a hold of him if you have questions. It, it's really wonderful. If you've got a local hacking conference, it's, a, it's really fun just to see. Maybe look around and see if there's a B-Sides conference near you. These are all over the country, and they're, they tend to be smaller, so it's a great kind of an intro. They're usually very cheap. Some They might even be free in some cases to get into. 
look around and see if you can find a local hacking conference. And if you're at all interested, go check one out. They're very interesting gatherings of people. They'll probably have areas where you can learn how to pick locks. They probably sell some funky hacking tools that you could play around with. It's a really great community, uh, and I highly recommend you check it out. FYI, the Hackasat 3 final event is going to be October 22nd through 23rd. Uh, if you want to get some more information on that, go to hackasat.com, H-A-C-K-A-S-A-T.com. There's a link for that in the show notes. And of course, he mentioned tons and tons of, of things today. And I've tried to find them all and put links to all of those in the show notes. All the tools he mentioned, all the tutorials and learning things and online CTF contests. I tried to put all the links to that in the show notes today. I also put a link to the article about that kid who rickrolled a school. And I probably should have mentioned this before. If for some reason you're not familiar with the term rickrolled, uh, there was this guy back in the 80s, I guess, named Rick Astley, who had this song, Never Gonna Give You Up. And somewhere in internet history, it became a thing to trick people into watching that video. And when you got someone to click a link or go to a website or do something that they expect one thing, but instead they get this video from Rick Astley, it's called being Rickrolled. And this kid managed to put the Rickroll video on all the projectors throughout the school system all at the same time and put in all these protections to keep the teachers and the administrators and IT folks from stopping it from playing. Uh, there, there's a link in the show notes if you want to get the information on this, but it, it was really kind of cool. And it's a, just a classic hack. It was completely harmless. And thankfully, the school system you know, had a good laugh and, you know, gave a pat on the back and there was no harm done uh, because, I mean, there, there are some school systems that would not have looked so kindly on that and would have prosecuted him like a criminal, which he wasn't. Uh, anyway, so I think that's a very interesting story. There's a link in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Now, I'm dead serious. This is something, if you have any interest in computers at all, you can get into this realm and just, you can dabble in it. You can just have fun with it. You can do these capture the flag tournaments that are totally free and happen every weekend. And you just want to play around with it and have some fun, maybe get some of your friends involved. It's a lot more fun if you do it in a group and just kind of poke around this stuff and learn how computers can be compromised. And if you find that that's at all interesting without going back to college for an, another degree, you could play around with this stuff and through bug bounties and some of the other things, you could actually make some money. Like some of the lowest bug bounties are a thousand bucks a pop. And there's a lot of low hanging fruit out there, believe me. So if you really want to get into this, there are some great online resources. A lot of the links I gave you today will help. Seriously, if, you, if you've ever thought about it, don't let it intimidate you. Give it, a, give it a shot. Check it out. The service that I was trying to remember during the interview that I couldn't think of the name of was called Try Hack Me. And of course, there's a link in the show notes for that too. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. Of course, I captured a couple extra questions with Jordan that will uh, be on the private podcast for my patrons. If you're interested in becoming a patron and getting some of that great extra bonus content and being able to chat with me and some of my other patrons on Discord and getting some extra behind the scenes information, maybe check out the video on how I created the challenge coin and how I do the podcast. And I tried to gather some of the maybe behind the scenes stuff and if you want to dig a little deeper on the book and the, the podcast and all the things that I do uh, for my patrons. So anyway, go to patreon.com or go to fdsd.me slash support and you can find it there. But for me, the patron thing is really a lot more about community. It's a lot of fun talking and hanging out with you guys on Discord. Uh, coming up at the end of the year, I will probably do a Zoom conference with any of my patrons who can make it. We'll just sit around, have some drinks and shoot the breeze. I really enjoy having some back and forth. It's kind of, I love doing the podcast. I love doing the interviews, but it's really nice to actually be able to directly interact with some of my listeners. So anyway, speaking of the podcast, I've got another new show again next week, and then we've got some more great interviews in the hopper coming down the line, including the big 300th episode, which will be right around Thanksgiving time here in the United States with Bruce Schneier. For that 300th episode, I'm going to be having some promotions. So if you're looking to maybe get one of my super cool dragon challenge coins, that will be your next opportunity to get one. And I think I'm actually going to have version 2.0 of those challenge coins ready for that promotion. Also hoping to have a, some really fun raffle kind of giveaways uh, for the 300th. So all that's coming up. Stay tuned for all the details. Remember, you can send me your questions, which I will read and answer here on the air. Uh, you can send them to Dear Carrie at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. If you go to fdsd.me slash QNA, the letter Q, the letter N, the letter A. 
as in, you know, Q&A. That'll tell you how to send me an email and even send me an audio clip if you want to hear your voice on the on the air. And uh, as you send me the questions, I will randomly pick names out of the hat and give you a free copy of my book as a incentive to send me questions. All right, that'll do it this week, everybody. Take care out there. Stay safe. I hope that any of you in the path of Hurricane Ian are doing okay. It's looking like it's going to be pretty bad. So fingers crossed that everybody comes through that safe and sound. Take care, everybody. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Mm-hmm.